Hello fellow Propaniacs, Melton McManerberry here with an announcement that I finally decided it's time for. Today's episode of Propaniacs will be the last, at least for the foreseeable future. It's a shame to end it just when King of the Hill is hitting its prime, and after putting so much personal blood, sweat, and tears into it, but at the same time, there's a real person behind this persona, with a real job and real responsibilities, such that time-wise, I just had to decide between this and my other podcast, because it wasn't sustainable to prepare an episode of one or the other every week. Propaniacs really needs a second person anyway. It really doesn't work that well as a solo act, but it never felt right to do this with anyone but Daisy. Nashville Anthems, on the other hand, does work with just me, or at least I think it does. So that's where I've decided to commit my time. So for anyone who doesn't make it all the way to the end of this episode, so for anyone who doesn't make it all the way to the end of this episode, thanks for listening. It's been a fun few seasons. And now, enough about me. Let's talk about King of the Hill. On with the show. Propaniacs. Check the temperature in that turkey, grab a tablecloth, and let's all be thankful that we did not disregard our carefully planned podcast rotation schedule. Because it's Thanksgiving in Arlen, and we're stuffing your podcast player with another episode of Propaniacs, a King of the Hill podcast. This episode brought to you by the Hotel Arlen. A brothel, no more. I'm your host, Milton McManerberry, and today the itty-bitty headlamps go on and the family fireworks go off as Cotton, Dee Dee, and Good Friday all happen to the hills. Well, first let's talk about some overall themes of this episode. First one that I saw would be the theme of loyalty. Specifically here, it's Hank's weirdly conflated loyalty to his mom and to his mower, and Bill's unrequited loyalty to Hank. There's also, I think, in this episode, an undercurrent of a jab at American consumerism. Six miles over Texas, anybody? This is playing out mostly in the B story with Peggy and her Black Friday battle that we'll talk about, but Hank can't avoid it either. Well, to get into the episode, we start with Act 1, and it's Thanksgiving, and man, do I love Thanksgiving episodes of King of the Hill. This is the first of many such favorites of mine. And Black Friday is happening to Hank while Peggy embraces it, even famously defines it in this episode. Also, Cotton shows up unannounced, again, and that overdone turkey completely wrecks Thanksgiving dinner, as well as this lawnmower focus group that Hank and the guys have signed up for. Okay, well, the episode starts off in the alley with Hank atop his beloved lawnmower talking to the guys, and a few important things happen here to lay the groundwork for the rest of this episode. First, obviously Hank is explicit about his affection for his old-school mower, and that bright-eyed naivety about the consumeristic retail world flows out of him immediately as he waxes poetic about this lawnmower focus group that he's going to be a part of in a comfortable mall setting. And that's the loyalty theme, the main thing this episode seems to be exploring. second thing that happened in this first scene is Bill. So we see here that Bill, much to his chagrin, has not been invited to this focus group. That's nothing remarkable, just typical poor Bill, right? But I want to point out the nice touch of the, so to speak, for animation, camera work 
regarding Bill in this scene. If you notice, Bill is almost always out of frame in this scene, and the camera actually pans over to him, if you will, which is unusual for King of the Hill, to get Bill's arms folded, back turned, sarcastic remark about his being snubbed. It does that pan thing with Bill a couple of times, and then it pans right back to Hank to get Bill back out of frame while Hank proceeds with what he was saying and ignores Bill. It's like, poor Bill. Even the camera operators forget about him unless he speaks. And then it's only temporary before they go back to the conversation we were just paying attention to. But in terms of the episode, it's an important first impression that we'll see play out throughout the episode. That's Hank's utter disrespect for Bill and Bill's utter loyalty to Hank. And oh yeah, Tilly shows up in this episode. Hank's mom is in town for Thanksgiving. Sans Gary, interestingly enough, and obviously Hank's relationship with his mother is at the center of this episode, even if Hank doesn't realize it. Well, there's a nice touch in the dining room in the next scene as Hank and Peggy are adding the leaves to the dining room table, Thanksgiving dinner being an obvious dining room situation. They're doing that, of course, to accommodate the bigger dinner crowd now that Cotton and Dee Dee have shown up unannounced to ruin this previously idyllic, at least in Hank's mind, Thanksgiving. And here's where the sort of B story of Peggy and Hank versus holiday consumerism is introduced. Peggy naturally, unquestioningly, does what, if you will, the masses do. Get up early on Black Friday to hit those doorbuster sales or whatever. And this fits her, right? Peggy is someone who is generally not really in touch with pop culture trends, but when she sniffs one that she sees as within reach for her, she jumps at it. Battle shopping feels right up her alley somehow. But it's not up Hank's alley. Hank's alley is behind the house, where he was just sitting on his lawnmower, drinking his Alamo, and chatting leisurely with his buddies. The animation here is nice, as Hank's consternation at Peggy's plan is drawn all over his face. So, let's ask this. What is Hank's hesitation? Is Hank a rebel? Is it that he prefers to zig when the rest of the culture zags? That doesn't feel like Hank. It doesn't feel like Hank would really think in those categories, does it? I think it feels more like his routine is being disrupted. It's like another wood chip is being chiseled off of his perfect Thanksgiving with his mom and his mower. Now he not only has cotton to deal with, but this new routine that seems specifically designed to raise his blood pressure when he expected to be enjoying a nice, relaxing morning of talking about his lawnmower. By the way, nice callback to the episode Jumpin' Crack Bass in Hank's response to Peggy. If you missed it, I'll let you go back and listen for that one yourself. Okay, so we have to acknowledge the Peggy line that shows up at the end of this dining room scene. Because of all Peggy lines, this must be the one that most makes Peggy Peggy. I remember, it must have been a previous episode commentary, hearing, I believe it was Greg Daniels and Paul Lieberstein talking about this line and how important it was to the development and realization of Peggy as a character. How it played off of the personality that Captain and Jimmy's voice acting had been infusing into Peggy through these first couple of seasons. And it kind of put the finishing touches on what we all now think of as Peggy Hill's personality. Penned by original King of the Hill writer and Bill's namesake, Jim Dordereve, the line is, The day after Thanksgiving is, in my opinion, the biggest shopping day of the year. Yeah, yeah, okay, I know. Black Friday isn't necessarily actually the biggest shopping day of the year, but the point is, it's commonly thought of as that in the culture. And Peggy is making the very Peggy move of appropriating that general opinion as her own unique one. And that's awesome. 
This is Peggy's combination of blissful ignorance of her context and her overdeveloped opinion of herself, especially of her intellect. We've seen that before, but I do feel like this is when it finally arrives to us fully formed. And we'll continue to see versions of this throughout the series, enough that I think we're going to have to name this phenomenon. Maybe they're Black Friday moments or something like that. Just a couple that stick out in my memory. Her baseless personal estimates of skydiving statistics at the beginning of Season 4. I can't remember which episode this is, but she tells, I believe it was Luann, Now, I am not a professional psychologist, but I am an amateur psychologist and proceeds to dispense unfounded psychological advice. It's all over the episode where their church group goes to Country Fair in Nashville. In fact, that central aspect of Peggy's personality is basically just what that episode is about. That's just the way Kathy Najimi and Jim Dojarive made her. Okay, Thanksgiving dinner is upon us, and I think I said it in the next of Shin episode, but I have to admit, Cotton is starting to grow on me. Here's what I mean. The issue I've had in the past with Cotton is, well, really Cotton's central issue and his central personality trait, and that's his lack of subtlety. In a show that's all about the small things, Cotton can disrupt the vibe with his bull-in-a-china-shop bravado. But here, that's exactly what's brilliant about him somehow. I mean, as the viewer, we're maybe thinking that Cotton's presence at Thanksgiving isn't going to be that big of a deal. He and Tilly have been estranged for many years now, after all, and so, yeah, that's not at all the case, as it turns out. And it does feel like the only way this whole thing either has to play out is very slowly and subtly, which I'm not sure how funny that would be or how much time there would be to do that, realistically and practically, or just go for it and shatter the glass with a sledgehammer. And a sledgehammer it is, as Cotton just couldn't be handling this situation worse. The scene is funny for its complete abandonment of subtlety in Cotton and in how it forces the other characters to react to him. And those reactions are basically to look at Hank for his reaction. And suddenly, we're back in the season one episode, Shins of the Father. In that episode, Hank had to deal with the rock and a hard place predicament of Cotton's disrespect toward his wife. Now it's his mother, and Hank is as hesitant to confront Cotton now as he was then. And now, as then, it's not Hank's best moment. He does come off as cowardly, as unwilling to step up when he's really needed. And we have to acknowledge again the legitimately difficult spot Hank was in. I mean, the whole thing with Cotton is you want to de-escalate. Cotton lacks the self-control to back down, so when you're against him, you kind of have no choice but to back down yourself, really for Cotton's own sake. In other words, Hank has to be the mature one here, because Cotton certainly isn't going to be, and Hank genuinely doesn't want to hurt his father in any sense, which is what it feels like would happen if he really faced him down. But that doesn't do anything for his mother, who clearly needs him here. For whatever reason, Tilly seems even less willing to confront Cotton than Peggy was in Shins of the Father. She just automatically and unreservedly, literally looks to Hank to come to her defense. So Hank is teed right up to do something we've seen him do before, a la Meet the Manger Babies, a la Husky Bobby, a la Peggy's Pageant Fever, namely, to come to the rescue of his family in their hour of need. But he just doesn't do it. And you can see that inner conflict written all over his body language and in Mike Judge's nice voice acting in this scene. And yet, Peggy continues in full battle preparation mode for this Black Friday showdown against and with the American consumeristic horde. Speaking of, Six Malls Over Texas, <laughs> I mentioned that earlier, that's pretty great. There, there was a trend in the late 90s of these like mega malls, and that name is a fun play on that trend, I have to say. 
And as we were saying earlier, that is King of the Hill's brand of satire. Those little digs it takes at culture by introducing it to these characters' otherwise insular world. It's consumerism that's on the other end of its skewer in this episode, as we see this cultural phenomenon happening, as it were, to these characters. And Peggy basically makes this battle mode mentality as a reaction to this phenomenon explicit with her mention of the mall eating them alive if they aren't adequately prepared. And I think what we're seeing here is a truth that's kind of inescapable about these sorts of things. That try as you might, you will not succeed in ignoring it. It must be reacted to. And because of that, it may actually be best just to embrace it as Peggy is doing. The whole thing is rather like Peggy's itty-bitty headlamp that Hank can't ignore and has to shield from his eyes. By the way, that's a nice touch. But Peggy's going with an if-you-can't-beat-them-join-them kind of approach. Let's see how that plays out. Well, the next day, everyone arrives at the mall, and in the battle of Peggy versus Six Malls over Texas, Six Malls over Texas lands the first blow, as Peggy is immediately sidelined by a detached shoe sole. One has to wonder about the quality of the products from Lubbock's Very Big Shoes here. I tell you what, they've really gone downhill. Okay, so I'm going to state the obvious here, but what else is new, right? Because the parallels between this focus group scene and the Thanksgiving dinner scene are definitely critical to how the episode plays out. First, Cotton unexpectedly and uninvitedly crashes the party. Second, Hank is extremely disappointed and uncomfortable at Cotton's presence, because Cotton has, again, essentially ruined a long-anticipated source of joy for Hank. Thirdly, Cotton, Hank, Bill, and others sit around a wooden table and talk. And finally, Cotton is, well, Cotton. He's disruptive and obnoxious, and he doesn't care. Actually, he may even actively enjoy how uncomfortable he makes everyone else, especially his son. But let's quickly acknowledge a fabulous guest voice in this episode. Neo-Bakersfield enthusiast Dwight Yoakam shows up to voice car dealer Lane Prattley, whom we met in Peggy's pageant fever. And Yoakam utters certainly one of my all-time favorite King of the Hill lines later in the episode. But for now, I have to ask what happened to Prattley Chevrolet. Why wasn't it in the list of dealerships that Prattley rattled off when he introduced himself? Maybe Peggy's test drive was what did him in? We may never know. we got to acknowledge here, too, that Dale sounds like he is inventing the name Rusty Shackelford out of thin air. But remember that we encountered that alias last season in Hank's Dirty Laundry, another episode that showed Dale's fear of being compromised by a computer. I was watching this episode with Melton's wife and preparing for this recording, and Dale sounds so much like he is coming up with that name on the spot that she asked if this was the first mention of Rusty Shackelford. Continuity problem here? Or is the joke on us? Is Dale, in fact, so clever that he would pretend to be making up an alias that he had already used many times in order to throw this computer off the scent? Don't forget... Dale is a professional bounty hunter now. He has the hat. But all those introductions are just getting us to the big reveal. Hank isn't there to talk about his tried and true mother, I mean Mason 1500 after all, but rather a younger, I mean newer model with undersized spandex pants instead of a comfy jumpsuit, an analogy Cotton will make explicit in a moment. And the first act ends with both Peggy's and Hank's plans as prepared and informed consumers stymied by the roller coaster of reality at Six Malls over Texas. 
Well, as we move into Act 2, things get weird as Cotton criticizes and Hank defends both his mom and his mower. Even Bill turns on Hank here. And the battle between Peggy and Black Friday continues. Spoiler alert, Black Friday wins. But first, we have to briefly stop off at this skating rink that Luann and Bobby are visiting. And how does King of the Hill manage to nail the feeling of holidays at the mall so well in this episode? You really see it in this scene. It's perfect. And it's what I love about King of the Hill holiday episodes, especially Thanksgiving. The sound, I feel like the sound is a big part of it. You can somehow feel that echoey, ambient conversation and shopping-type sounds that I don't know how to define, but they're there. The lighting also, the decorations, the sweaters. It's perfectly in that sweet spot of not really upscale. You know what I mean? It's a veneer of class that can't hide the plastic garland, low acoustical tile ceilings, and 2 by 4 fluorescent lights. The music, the speaker looks and sounds cheap. I don't know. It's just dead on and fits the whole vibe of King of the Hill to a T. By the way, it's six miles over Texas to Peggy Hill Zero. As Peggy has fallen fast asleep in the little shoe store, she's getting her soul repaired in. Yes, folks, with all, this guy is a mender of souls. So here I think the implication may be that Peggy stayed up all night clipping coupons in preparation for this battle, especially since she was still wearing her itty-bitty headlamp in the last act when they were in the driveway. Even if that's not exactly true, the the point is clear. Peggy's overconfidence in the brilliance of her battle plan ran into the ambush of the reality of her physical limitation. And down she went. Okay, back to the focus group. There is a lot going on here besides Dwight Yoakam's killer voice acting as Lane Pradley. First, we're seeing the dark flip side of the guys, especially Bill's loyalty to Hank. Loyalty is a positive, right? But this is how the episode plays with that idea, because as soon as Hank starts to sense his position regarding his old school mower is in danger of losing this battle, he quite simply abuses the guy's loyalty to gain the upper hand or to try to regain the upper hand, especially Bill's. Bill, who doesn't always come off as simple-minded in King of the Hill, in fact, we've seen him turn out to be the voice of reason at times, But those times are really the exception, and this episode is the rule. Hank's Jedi mind tricks are working on Bill, at least initially. So Hank quickly feels challenged in a way that he's not used to. Hank is used to being the alpha male in a setting like this, but Cotton's presence already had him off his game, and the revelation now, the souped-up mower, has certainly caught him off guard. So Hank reacts by doubling down on his typical social leadership and just presumes his herd will follow his headship. We also see Cotton making all this work by, in his typical brash way, making explicit the undercurrent that we suspected was happening in Hank's mind, that of Hank's loyalty to his mower being a proxy for his loyalty to his mother. And Cotton places that challenge squarely within the framework of Hank's conservatism. And this is where the conflict gets complicated and disturbing, frankly, because Cotton immediately gets it, that Hank is conflating these two things. Major shades of Hank's got the willies here, by the way, as well as pregnant paws. It seems that the mower always comes up when Hank retreats from difficult human relational issues into his concrete materialistic world. So Cotton, being Cotton, does kind of his anti-therapy thing and exploits this projection or whatever it is that Hank is doing as a weakness in his enemy. Hank probably also knows that Cotton has hit the nail on the head with this parallel, but all of the internal conflict we saw at Thanksgiving is still there, making Hank hesitant to confront his father's inappropriateness and disrespect for his mother and his mower, 
head on. Also, that sort of probing of his deeper feelings is just nowhere near Hank's wheelhouse, as we saw in Hank's unmentionable problem, and especially Luann's saga. So there is obviously a larger issue at play here. I mean, even Bill gets it. And Act 2 ends with Hank back firmly against the wall, digging in on his loyalty to his mower and to his mother, while the rest of the jury is ready to render its contrary verdict. And Peggy, meanwhile, is indefinitely stymied possibly utterly defeated in her own battle within this all-out war being waged by the consumeristic culture. Well, finally, we move on to Act 3, and it's confession time for me. This is where, for me, an otherwise all-time classic episode falls a little flat. We get the resolution of Hank's mower issues and his mother issues, but I struggle with what seem to me to be compromises in realism that take place in order to get us there. Although the episode almost breaks the fourth wall to acknowledge how contrived some of this is, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay, before we talk about the way this episode digs its way out of this conflict, I have to give a shout-out to one of my all-time favorite King of the Hill lines, which I mentioned earlier. This is right up there with Jack Kennedy called, for me. Dwight Yoakam as Lane Pratley's I'd like to take the good reverend down to the dealership. Put him behind the wheel of a brand new, pre-owned Sonata. Melton's wife has to live with that one every time we pass a Hyundai on the interstate or encounter a piece of classical music. Okay, Khan brings any viewer up to speed who might have only tuned in after the second commercial break with a summary of Hank's internal struggles that's worth quoting verbatim. When you little redneck boy, you couldn't defend your mother. Now you compensate by defending your mower. You confuse personal issues with technological. I have father issues too, but this is a good mower. And that's really it, right? Hank is doing that thing where he retreats from personal issues into his tools, his concrete things that he fully owns, controls, and enjoys. And when even that fails him, as it does here, he has nowhere else to retreat to. So he digs in and then lashes out. And this is where I struggle with this otherwise fantastic episode. Hank's arguments against the Mason 2500 just seem contrived to me. This one has the feel of a few other episodes we've covered, where the episode seems like it was written into a corner and had to stretch a little to find resolution. The man who shot Kane Skretterberg, Leanne Saga, and Next of Shin all felt that way to me. And yes, listeners, I do recognize the strong reference to the movie 12 Angry Men and how this plays out. It is in the episode title, after all, hard to miss. But that's kind of just it. Resolving the conflict by having the characters unknowingly act out a famous piece of popular culture is a Simpsons move. Now, I love The Simpsons, and that move works extremely well in that show. But I would argue that it's a poor fit for as small, grounded, and realistic a show as King of the Hill. The logic also kind of doesn't work. I'll buy Hank's point about dealer markup that he made to Lane Prattley, but Boomhauer's objection to the seat warmer doesn't hold water or beer, because with the cup holder, there would be no need to keep his Alamo can between his legs and risk it getting warmed up. By the way, shout out to Melton's wife for pointing out that said cup holder is prominently positioned behind Boomhauer in the shot as he reacts to Hank's protest. And Dale's objection to being watched has about as much to do with the relative merits of the Mason 2500 and 1500 as does Hank's loyalty to his mother. The wreck and the broken cup holder feel contrived, and yeah, I'm just not buying it. 
It feels like the 12 Angry Men parallel is only there to try to salvage this implausible resolution, kind of like the Vegas trip in Next of Shin. Now, a couple of things that for me do partially redeem this resolution. First, the resolution of Hank's bullying Bill by constantly speaking for him is pretty great. (laughs) The Jedi mind trick did work in the end. That's somehow fitting. And I really appreciate that the show seems to wink at how contrived this resolution is by Tilly's line. Well, they said the restroom was the second door on the right. This must be it to get her into the observation room. I mean, it's pretty implausible that she would have wandered into that room and at exactly the right moment to observe Hank's dressing down of cotton in her defense. So at that point, just lean into the implausibility and have Tilly essentially acknowledge it. It's a little self-awareness, a little self-deprecation of the episode, and a mild breaking of the fourth wall, something King of the Hill does from time to time, and I personally like it here. It's also glorious how Hank never does disentangle his loyalty to his mower from his loyalty to his mother when he finally snaps. That's very King of the Hill. Luan Saga was a great example of this, and Hank's conflict with Boomhauer in that episode. It was never resolved at any deep level, but it never had to be. Hank offered him a beer, Boomhauer accepted, and that's all there was to it. Here, Hank has put Cotton in his place. Hank's mother and his mower are justified, Cotton is vilified, and we have our resolution with Hank back on top of the pecking order. But we mustn't forget to resolve the B story. And the episode doesn't forget either, as Peggy remains asleep in the shoe store, Black Friday and American consumerism having overwhelmed her meager defenses and left her for dead on the battlefield. Okay, time for ratings. Well, as I mentioned, I'm not crazy about the third act of this one. But I am crazy about the first two acts, and the third had some nice things to redeem it, at least for me. You know, I mentioned in the pilot episode that I think King of the Hill is 50% setting. And I think you see a good example of that in this episode. The convoluted conflict is nice. The humor is definitely there, all that. But what puts this episode over the top for me is this completely on-the-nose holiday mall setting. I love that King of the Hill takes the time on things like that to get them just right and cross whatever that tipping point is, such that as the viewer, the setting isn't just indicated, but felt. I swim in the feel of this episode because the setting is so meticulously constructed, and that's worth the two-hour drive for me every time, 50 bucks or not. So, it's been a while since I've had one I'd call a perfect 10, and we almost had it here, but I'm going to call this two acts of 10 plus one act of 7, which averages out to nine goober smooches, one for each of those pretty darn angry men. And with that, the days are getting shorter and the crowd is getting thinner. So let's make that two-hour drive back to Rainy Street, park the truck outside the garage, walk through the living room door, and slide it shut for the last time. This has been a blast, folks. And I'm still not sure it's the right move to shut it down. But here we are. Thanks for listening. Do check out my other and now only podcast, Nashville Anthems, dissecting 80s and 90s country music. If you're into King of the Hill, even if you're not into country music, I've got a feeling you'll enjoy it. We cover some of the same ground. Anyway, this is Melton McMainerberry and the real person behind him, signing off.